Welcome to another special edition of Crosswalk. Say, if you're a sports fan, this is a great time of year. Baseball is in postseason, football is in midseason, and basketball is in preseason. Sports fans are passionate for their team, and they're not afraid to show it. So what about Christians? Are we passionate about our God, and are we not afraid to show it? We're continuing our series, Cross-Culture Reconnect, taking a few weeks to talk about who we are as a church. Today, Pastor Clay is going to talk about our passion as a church and why it's important that we understand that we have something to be very passionate about. He's also going to introduce the second half of our strategy, our large group gatherings, also known as worship. Our worship pastor, John Spolino, is going to share his heart about the importance of worship in our lives as fully devoted followers of Jesus. Now here's Pastor Pastor Clay with part two of Cross Culture Reconnect. We are in a series that we kicked off last week called Cross Culture Reconnect. I'm going to jump right into it today because uh, we have a good bit of uh, ground to cover. A little bit of a different way that we do a series where normally I might walk through a, a, a passage or a, a book of the Bible or something like that. This is, this is going back through looking at who we are as a church as we just kind of passed the four year mark of, uh, you know, uh, getting cross culture going. And it's periodically it's a good idea to go back and say, okay, who are we as a church? Why are we as a church? What are we as a church? And to begin to evaluate uh, some of those things. I wanted to give you just a brief, 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 brief review of uh, what I talked about last week. And uh, then we'll move on to what I want to talk about this week. And then uh, John will be coming up in a little bit as well. Uh, last week, just to remind you, and I think this is already filled in on the back of your information sheet, uh, we restated our name. And I told you then that uh, the churches come with all kinds of names for themselves. It might be based on a community. It might be based on a, a biblical reference. It might be based on just something that's a catchy phrase or, you know, all different kinds of names these days uh, for churches. But that one of the things that I wanted to communicate to you and that I hope that you communicate to the people that you come in contact with is that our name actually, that it, that it means something, that it actually stands for something. It's not just a catchy phrase or not just something, oh yeah, you got three C's in there or y'all can be C3 church or you know, C2 church or whatever. Our, our, our name actually stands for something. And if you hear here last week, you, you heard this. It is, again, filled in on your thing. But just to remind you real quickly, uh, Cross Culture Church uh, stands for this. Uh, we will be a church that will, number one, take the message of the cross to our culture. That, that's what we're going to be about. And I'll, I'll have more to say about that in just a few moments. But that's in our name, Cross Culture Church. We're, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take the message of the cross to our culture. By the way, if you weren't here last week, you might want to look up these scriptural references. You might also want to go back and listen. You can go directly to our website, click on media, follow directions there to, to, to pick up any sermon. Uh, and then you also can uh, sign up and have them uh, come to you automatically through iTunes. Uh, second, uh, we desire to be a cross-segment of our culture, that, that we desire to be intentional about saying uh, or attracting uh, people, uh, regardless of their skin color or their, or their uh, status in society or the, num- uh, the, the size of their salary or their economic or, or educational, whatever that, that red, yellow, black, white, pink, polka dotted, um, whatever the case may be, people can come here and that we, in that sense, would look like our community. Third, create a cross culture. And quite honestly, while, while this has always been listed the third, all of them are important, but quite honestly, I don't think the first two can take place until the, until the third one takes place. And if you were here, you remember, create a cross culture based on Luke 9, 23, which is our theme first here at Cross Culture Church. If any person would desire to, to be my follower, Jesus said, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. 
So there's this sense of dying to myself and recognize, hey, this is not about me. This is about a greater work that God wants to do. This is about the people that are around me are more important. This is about the people outside, outside these walls that are more important. You and I have to come to that place where we say, you know what, I, my life is going to be built on this, this culture of the cross. I'm going to be living for someone else, not myself. And when that begins to happen, ladies and gentlemen, then we'll see those first two happen at a greater uh, degree uh, in our lives, taking the mess of the cross to our culture and a cross segment of our culture. So those three points right there are succinct and they are what you can use every time you hand out one of those iVite cards. Remember, they're out there at our information desk. You can pick them up. They're in, in packs of seven or 10 or something like that. Pick a pack up every time you need some. Hand one out, and when somebody says to you, huh, cross-culture church, what does that mean? You can just, you can even give your abbreviated version, but you can give them exactly, well, here's what cross-culture church uh, really means, and you can give them that. So we, we restated last week our name, all right? The second thing that we did last week was we reintroduced our strategy, and we went into part one. Um, but we reintroduced our strategy, and if you were here, you remember that I said that while it's also biblical, that, that our strategy here at Cross Culture was formulated to a great degree uh, based on some reading that I did a, few, a number of years ago in a book called Simple Church uh, by Tom Rayner and Eric Geiger. And the, church, the premise of the book is that uh, we've got too many programs, too many committee meetings, too many this, too many that going on in the church, and we need to free up the church which is the body of believers, we need to free them up to engage in other people's lives outside of these walls and to be able to engage in each other's lives and, and not spend all these times, not that, I'm not saying that all programs are bad or committee meetings, I'm sure that stuff needs to be done, but that the church needs to focus, uh, in, in Rainer and Geiger's estimation, the church needs to focus on one or two or maybe at the most three areas that they really emphasize uh, with their church. So across culture, uh, we have kind of focused on, on two areas. And we introduced the first one last week, and that was our small gatherings, something that we call life groups. And at this point last week, uh, Pastor Bill, our life group pastor, came up and he shared with you, just really from his heart, how life groups have, have impacted his life. And then Marilyn Varner shared a testimony of how life groups have impacted her life. And we just want you to know that we're not apologetic about the fact that that life groups are an intricate part of who we are as a church. And we want people plugged into life groups. By the way, um, uh, Bill, or anybody else for that matter, but Bill doesn't get paid, you know, per head of number of people he gets in life groups. So it's not, it's not that we're trying to do this so that, you know, it, it's because we believe in the, in, in the philosophy of, of small groups of people gathered together, sharing their life, sharing their burdens, sharing their victories and their joys and, and studying God's word together, those kind of things. We have all kinds of life groups for all different age groups and, and mixed age groups and married and sing, all that kind of stuff. We want to continue to encourage you to be in life groups. Thanks, by the way, to all the life groups who in the past week put on your, your uh, little uh, events and activities and hopefully everybody had lots of fun and some of you hopefully tried out some life groups. So that's kind of the first leg of our, of our simple church strategy, all right? We're going to have small groups. And we're going to encourage all of our people to be involved in a small group as best we can. We can't force anybody, I don't guess, but as best we can, we're going to try and get folks plugged into small groups. Now, we'll get to the second part of our strategy in just a few moments, but I want to talk about one other thing. Just as last week I uh, restated our name, today I want to talk about one other subject matter, and then John will be coming up. Um, most of you 
uh, remember uh, Steve Irwin, uh, also known as uh, the Crocodile Hunter. Most of you guys remember, most everybody remembers Steve Irwin. Uh, tragically, uh, he was killed um, while scuba diving in September of 2006. I looked it up last night. I didn't realize it had been that long ago. September 2006, he was uh, killed when he was uh, pierced in the heart by a stingray. Um, I wanted you to see a video as kind of an introduction of what I want to talk about for just a few moments. But I want you to see the video this morning about Steve. This is a vi- not about him. This is, this is a video of Steve Irwin upon discovering that uh, a crocodile has died. Watch this. She died in her sleep. The best way anyone could ever go. This is a really special friend of mine. Her name's Mary, and I caught her. She was over 100 years of age. And she's one of the most beautiful animals I've ever seen in my top life. And I love her like I love my wife. I just love Mary so much. <laughs> now, you might question Steve Irwin's sanity. I have no idea how my wife would react if I went home and said, Honey, I love you as much as I love a crocodile. But you cannot question the man's passion. His passion for animals in general, the animal kingdom in general, and specifically for crocodiles. I mean, this guy had a passion for this in in his life. And watch this, this is important. His passion, listen to me, his passion drove his purpose. His passion, in fact, created his purpose for life. And he dedicated his life to his passion. I say that because in a week or two, we're going to look at our purpose as a church. But as we do, I've always thought, and we've always thought from the very beginning across culture, that it was important that we have more than just a purpose, that we have a passion. You ever think about that? Why do you do what you do? You may be passionate about your your job or not passionate about your job. You may be passionate about your family or not passionate about your family. You may be passionate about church or not passionate about church. Passion will drive your purpose. Let's define passion real quickly this morning. Passion, according to Merriam-Webster, and there, there were a number of definitions, by the way. Uh, I'm selecting a few here because it really gets to what I'm driving home. Passion, intense driving or overmastering feeling or conviction, a strong liking or desire for or devotion to some activity, object, or concept. Now, that was Steve Irwin, right? I mean, you could just put his face beside that definition right there because that's how he was about the animal kingdom and specifically about crocodiles. What about you and me? What about us as a church? What would passion, if we, if we begin to talk about passion, what would that look like? So, what I want to do this morning is rekindle our passion. We've restated our name. We've reintroduced our strategy, which we'll do the second part in a few moments. I want to rekindle 
our passion. We have at Cross Culture a passion statement. Now, some of you are familiar with it. Some of you know it. Some of you give me half way to it most of the times. But here is our passion statement. If you've never seen or heard this before, our passion statement is simply this, taking the cross to our culture, taking our culture to the cross. By the way, uh, if you haven't figured it out by now, the cross is a big deal for us. It all centers on the cross. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But that is, as succinctly as, as we could say it, that is our passion statement, taking the cross to our culture, taking our culture to the cross. Simply meaning that as you and I take the cross, the message of the cross, right? You with me? We take the message of the cross to our culture. Now, who is our culture? They're, they're everybody. They're everybody that's around us. They're the people we go to school with. They're the people that we work beside. They're our neighbors in the, in the neighborhood. They are our culture. We take that message of the cross to that culture. And as we do, God uses that in a remarkable way to then take our culture to the cross. In other words, by sharing the message of Christ, God uses that then to draw those people to Christ and to the cross because it is at the cross, ladies and gentlemen, right? It is at the cross where salvation is found. Remember that verse? Or maybe you've never heard of it. There is salvation in no other name, but at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess to the glory of God the Father. You remember that idea? That's, that's just, we believe that at Cross Culture Church. And so our passion should be, and I, I just wondered, what would it be like if I had that, if I had Steve Irwin passion to take the cross to our culture? If you and I walked out of here today with that kind of passion in our lives, that this is important, ladies and gentlemen, because this is going to drive our purpose. And we'll get to that, as I said, in a week or two. Let me tell you why this, how did you, why, why is this our passion? Well, first off, because the cross is our message. I've already said that a couple different ways, but I got nothing, right? I got nothing. If, 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 I, if, there's, if it's not based on the cross of Jesus Christ, I just got nothing. Now, does that mean that every single sermon that you hear is going to, uh, you know, specifically be about the cross of Christ and how he died and, and, you know, and all that kind of... No, it doesn't necessarily mean that every single message is going to be about that. But what it means is that the philosophy of this church, the teaching of this church, both in, in, in this setting and in small groups, everything's going to be based on the premise that everything begins at the cross of Christ. Can I just remind you of a few passages of Scripture? 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24 but we preach Christ crucified. By the way, that word preach, it's not talking about just the guy that stands up here or the guy that stands behind the pulpit or anything else like that. To preach, it simply means to, to proclaim or to herald. So it can be you and your neighbor. It can be your coworker. It can be your classmate. It can be, but you are, you're preaching, you are proclaiming. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. He says it's a stumbling block to Jews. It was a stumbling block because Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, they thought was going to come and just reestablish the glory of Israel, make it a great kingdom again. They didn't understand that the Savior would actually have to die first. They didn't get that. And so they, they were stumbling over that idea. Oh, Messiah, Savior's got to die? Paul says to Jews, it's a stumbling block. And he, and he says, uh, and foolishness to Gentiles, that just simply means non-Jews. It was foolishness primarily for two reasons. Uh, number one, because the idea that, that, the very idea that God, a God, would become a man, would come down here and endure pain and, and suffering, that he, would, that he would 
Why? Why, Why would God possibly? That's foolish. And then the second area was the idea that this God became a man. He died for our sins. Oh, and by the way, he came back to life. Well, that's, that's foolishness to them. What's what, what he says? But to those whom God has called, he's drawing unto himself, both Jews and Greeks. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's, how that, that's where that relationship comes from. All right, look at this one. I got to move on. First Corinthians 2, 2. Paul says, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you. Will you say that last part with me, please? Except Jesus Christ and him crucified, a.k.a. the cross. Now, I'm sure Paul taught them lots of other things. I'm sure he taught them practical advice and, and biblical passages, all this kind of stuff. But Paul's saying, Man, this, I, I, this is where it has to start. This is it. It's the cross. There's no other hope for humanity if this is not true. How about this one? Galatians 6.14. But may, may, may it never be that I would boast except in the, say it, cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul said, I've, I've, I've died to myself. It's not about me. I'm, I'm living for the cross. There's that passion. I'm living for the cross of Christ. That's what it's all about. That's where my focus is. That's what this thing is. See, see, passion, passion, passion. You with me? Say passion. All right, that's pretty good. All right, look at another one. Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his, say it, cross. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Peace has been made between mankind and God Almighty through the blood of the cross. That's it. God has provided that. God has made peace for us. Uh, uh, my youngest grandson turned two yesterday and... Uh, uh, we're having a big party for him out at his, uh, his house, parents' house. And um, uh, my daughter-in-law, Candy, her, she has lots of family, extended family, and lots of friends. And JC has lots of friends and lots of people there that, that I don't really know. Um, and some of them I've seen, I saw exactly one year ago at Jesse's first birthday party. And I just, I just don't see them a lot or whatever else. And so there was this one gentleman named Norman that I uh, just kind of engaged in conversation. I was talking to Norman. You know, we're talking about the weather and what a beautiful day it was and all that sort of thing. And then I said, man, Norman, it's hard to believe uh, that, uh, uh, that it's been a year since we were here. It just seemed like it was just a couple days ago that we were outside here doing this same thing. And he says, yeah, I know time really passes fast. Norman's a little bit of older gentleman. He said, time uh, really passes fast. He said, my mother uh, died this year. And he said, ever since then, it just seems like time has really, really moved fast. And I uh, offered my condolences at the passing of his mother. I asked how old she was, and he said she was 91. I said, wow, that's, that's, that's awesome, Norman, that she, she lived a long life like that. And, uh, and he said, yeah, and he said, and she was, she was ready to go. And he didn't say heaven, he didn't say heaven. He said, he said she was ready to go to that place that, uh, and he kind of laughed, well, I'm not sure that I'll ever get there. Or he said it like that, or he said something like, or that I'll ever be able to get there. It was something like that. Whatever it was, I pounced on it. <laughs> I said, no, I, no, it was just, you could, I mean, that's like, you know, talking about lobbing up a softball, 
you know, it's like, I said, I said, oh, Norman, Norman. I said, let me, let me tell you. I said, the great thing is uh, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about whether you're going to be good enough to get in there or not. You don't have to worry about whether you're going to be able to work your way into there. And I don't know what all I say, and I was just going. Um, I said, but you don't, I said, because that's already been provided for you, Norman. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we might have a relationship with him and, and that, that we wouldn't have to work for it because we never could work for it enough. Norman, to get in the peace he has provided through his blood that was shed on the cross. Man, can I get passionate about that? Can you and I get passionate about that? Uh, Here's one more. I think I got one more. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the, come on, cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. <laughs> I think I've used this verse before. I've talked about it. Jesus, after Jesus rose from the grave, I'm telling you, he sang, he sang the he sang the Nana song to to the devil and to all all the demonic forces. You know, y'all know that song. Y'all want to sing it? Have we got time? Oh, it's John. It's uh, I'm telling you, that's what that's what Jesus. Did. Okay, all right, all right, we won't sing it. But but that's what Jesus. That's what. It, He disarmed the spiritual rules and authority. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. He canceled the record of the charges against us. It all happened, ladies and gentlemen. Listen to me. It all happened at the cross. That's why this has to be the passion of our life. That's our message. We don't have another message. Now, I know it's become very in vogue these days at lots of churches to to talk about lots of different things. And it's amazing the things that, you know, everything people talk about but never seem to get around to the cross. I'm not saying there aren't other issues that need to be addressed. We need to to speak on biblical passages that deal with with marriage issues and and financial issues and, and, you know, holiness. There's just all kinds of stuff. The Bible deals with all kinds of stuff. But if we leave this out, we got nothing. This is our message. And so it ought to be our passion. Oh, and by the way, just in case we forget, it's also our motivation. The cross is our motivation. That's how Paul says it in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, Paul says, I'm still alive. I haven't physically died yet. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's my motivation. This is, he did this for me. He gave his life for me. He canceled my sin debt with his precious sinless blood. Man, shouldn't I be able to get motivated? about that? Shouldn't that become the passion of my life to tell other people about what this is? Shouldn't that be the driving force of a church? And that is the passion of cross-culture church. But it's one thing, listen to me, then we'll move on. It's one thing, ladies and gentlemen, to have it on a piece of paper. It's one thing to have it on a sign, and, and there's lots of ways that we need to communicate this more clearly to you all. By the way, that's kind of an in-house thing, that, that passion statement. That's, that's for us. That's to remind us. This is what we are about. It's one thing to have it on printed material. It's another thing to have it stamped on our hearts so that when we go out the door, we're thinking, God, how would you use me today? Whose life would you like to intersect me with? How can I somehow find a way to share what Christ has done in my life? 
And some days, it, it's just, it's like Norman. It just shows up, it's just right there. Other days, you're saying, man, I, I didn't really see it. I, I don't know that I really did anything for the kingdom of God today. That's, folks, I'm just telling you, just keep showing up. Keep having that same passion in your life and desire to say, man, look what God has done for me. That's something I can build my life on. If Steve Irwin, and I'm, I'm not dissing on him at all, I, I think the guy was amazing. If Steve Irwin can build an entire life and career and, and, and everything on the importance of the animal kingdom, then surely you and I can build our lives on the importance of God's kingdom. Okay, that's our passion. That's our passion. Now, as I said uh, a few moments ago, last week we reintroduced the first leg of our simple church model. And it was small gatherings, life groups. Today, I want to introduce in the time left, our second leg, the second area that we really, at this time in our life of our church, that we're focusing on, and that's our large gatherings. And that's worship, ladies and gentlemen. Corporate body worship. And I thought it would be quite appropriate for John Spolino, our worship pastor, to come and share his heart and what God's teaching him about worship as he leads us in that area. Come on, John. Make him feel welcome as he comes. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Thanks, Pastor Clay. The cross is our message and is our motivation. And worship is just one way that we get to adore God. And so this morning, we are going to be looking at two different elements, two different questions. The first is, what is worship? What is it at its foundation? What is it? And the second is, what's the big deal about worshiping together on Sunday? Why do we need it? What's the purpose of it? And since the cross... As our message, that's what we're going to be talking about. I believe that knowing the entire story of a book or a movie is important for appreciation of that story or book. And so if I was to give you um, just these five facts, Luke Skywalker wants to bring down the empire. Force lightning has to be the greatest force power in the Star Wars world. Han shot first. Jabba the Hutt, and only nerds know that joke, but uh, Jabba the Hutt is really gross. And Luke Skywalker really does bring down the emperor. You would pick up on the fact that I'm talking about Star Wars, one of the greatest movie franchises that was ever created. And I'm talking about the old ones, not, not the new ones. Those are terrible. But the original Star Wars trilogy. You just don't get the excitement from facts. You don't, you don't get the dynamic plot twist or that emotion that courses through your veins when you hear for the first time Darth Vader tell Luke, Ouch, Luke, I am your father. Right? Or, or you don't get the wisdom of Yoda. And I'm going to do my best. <laughs> do or do not. There is no try. Right? <laughs> You don't, thank you, you don't get that excitement or or that joy when Darth Vader picks up the emperor and throws him down that wind tunnel, right? Showing that he loves Luke and Leia. You just don't get that from facts. 
You have to know the story. You have to start from the beginning and, and immerse yourself in the story. You have to experience the story. I'm convinced that the greater understanding that we have of a particular story, the greater affection or adoration we can have for that story. And I know that was a nerdy example, but I think the same is for the Bible. The more we know about God, the more affection we can have for him. The more we experience him, the more we can adore him. And so this morning, we're going to walk through the story of God. If you have a Bible with you, uh, with you this morning, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We will have the, the scripture up there on the screens for you to follow along. But if you have one, why don't you open up to Ephesians chapter 1, 19, the middle of 19. And I believe that specifically the beginning or the end of Ephesians 1 and the beginning of Ephesians 2 offers us a framework to work from that will show us the story of God, creation, the fall, redemption, and the new creation. So we're going to look at that this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, middle of 19. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, being God's might, which he brought about in Christ. When he, was, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we see here in this beginning part that Paul is exalting Christ. He's saying Christ is seated in the heavens. Everything, he has power over everything. So all rule, all power, all dominion, absolutely everything. Everything is in subjection underneath him. He has all authority. But we have to ask the question, why? Why is everything in subjection to Jesus? If you turn your pages over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we see similar words. It says this, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created. That's important. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And get this. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things together. So what is the connection between Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1? The reason all things are in subjection to Jesus is because all creation was made in him, through him, and for him, and by him all things hold together. Or as John 1.1 says, um, talking about the deity of Jesus, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and this, will, this should sound familiar. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus was in creation. He was not a creation. He was a part of the triune God creating. And that's why everything is in subjection un, under his feet. And so this morning, let's talk about creation. In Genesis 1.1, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. He created the vegetation. He created the stars. He created all the creeping things and, and the birds and all the animals. He created everything. And at the climax of creation, he created mankind. He created Adam and Eve. And, and he created them in the image of God. And he said, mankind is my masterpiece. 
And, and the, he, mankind was created to worship God, to adore God, to have this relationship and commune with God. And everything was great. There was perfect harmony between mankind and creation. There was perfect harmony between mankind and mankind. And there's perfect harmony, harmony between God and man. And for that brief moment, everything was working according to its intended purpose. Everything was as it should have been. It was perfect. But then we get to the fall. In one act of rebellion, of distrust, distrusting and disbelieving God and his character, Adam and Eve ate from a tree that God had commanded them not to. And when that happened, sin entered the world. And it not only affected every single area of our life, but now the relationship between mankind and creation was tainted. The relationship between mankind and mankind was tainted. And the relationship between God and man was severed and broken. And that masterpiece that God had created fell like a piece of pottery, shattering on the ground. And we broke into a million pieces. And for the rest of our life, all we try to do is to put the pieces back together again. We were created to worship. And when sin came into the world, worship was, was misplaced. It was misdirected. And so we spend our lives searching for something that's going to put us back together again, not realizing that the only one that can do that is the one who puts you together in the first place, God. And so Ephesians 2 the beginning of Ephesians 2 reads it like this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Look at this. We, we were dead. We formerly walked according to the course of this world. We lived in the lusts of the flesh. By nature, we were children of wrath. Listen, by nature, we don't want to love God. And that's not a popular thing to say, but everyone would rather love themselves than love God. Isn't that what sin is? It's loving yourself more than loving God. It's thinking that you know what's best for you more than what God thinks is best for you. Or it comes back to the first sin, disbelieving God and his character that he knows what's best. Romans 3.10 says this, no one is righteous. 3.11 says no one seeks God. 3.12 says all have turned aside and no one does good. Romans 5.17 says that death reigned in us. 5.18 says that there was condemnation to all men. 6.17 says we were slaves of sin. Apart from Christ, Romans 8.9 says if the spirit of Christ doesn't dwell in him, he doesn't belong to Jesus. 1 John 1.10 says, we, or 1.6, we walk in the darkness. 1 John 1.10 says, the word is not in us. Romans 8.7 says, the hostile, or the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. And this is who we are apart from Christ. Absolutely hopeless if left up to ourselves. But by God's grace, he made a promise and he kept that promise so that one day we can be reconciled and put back together again. I love it in Genesis 3, before God even curses or gives, gives, gives the consequences of the sin to Adam and Eve, he makes a promise, a promise to us against Satan. It says this in 3.15, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head 
and you shall bruise him on the heel. Or the Spolino paraphrase version of this. Listen, Satan, you may think you have won, but one day I'm going to send somebody who will destroy you. He will completely wipe you out and he's going to destroy sin. He's going to destroy everything. And as one of my professors at Southeastern says, the whole entire Bible is asking this question, who is that one? Who is the Messiah? Who is that savior that God has promised? It's interesting, you see Adam and Eve, and then who did they have? They had Cain and Abel. And Cain killed Abel. So obviously Abel can't be the line that Jesus comes through. And then you gotta be thinking, well, didn't Cain you know, murder his brother. So that probably wouldn't be that great of a line to come through, right? And so, and so you, you see all these things like, what are we going to do? But we have 100% confidence that when God makes a promise, promise he's going to keep it. And so, so Adam and Eve have a son named Seth. And when you see, when you get Seth, then you get Noah, when God wiped out all the wickedness of the earth, but he preserved Noah. Then you get Noah, and then eventually you get Abraham, and then you get the 12 tribes of Israel. And you can see throughout all the Old Testament, God providing and showing that he is making truth of his promise and it will happen. And it may not seem like a whole lot, but in Matthew 1.1, the beginning words read like this. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So who is that one? It's Jesus. And I love how Galatians puts it. Galatians chapter one says this. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our, of our God, the Father. Promise made and promise kept. God said, who, I will provide the one for you. We ask the question, who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus, the son of God born of a virgin, both God and man, lived a perfect and sinless life. He taught the things of God and he taught that he was a son of God. And, and he sacrificed himself for us. And not only did he go to the cross and endure a severe physical beating and death, but what was, what, what was worse was the spiritual torment as he took on the punishment of you and I. And I love how David Platt puts it. He says this. He says, it was as if you and I were standing before a dam 10,000 feet high, 10,000 feet wide. And a moment that dam broke open and all that torrent of water just came rushing towards us and we were completely helpless. And before one drop can touch our toe, the ground opened up and swallowed every single last drop of water. And at the cross, Christ drank the full cup of God's wrath, drank every last drop. And when it was done, he turned it over and said, it is finished. And not only is it finished, those who believe in Jesus Christ can be reconciled with him and and now commune again with God. It's amazing. I love how Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 put it. But God, being rich in mercy because his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, we might show the surpassing riches of his grace towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And not only is it finished, But one day, 
Christ is coming back. And he, and he tells us that he's going to create this new heaven and this new earth where God's people, again, one day dwell with God. And there's perfect harmony between man and creation. There's perfect harmony between man and man. And there's perfect harmony between man and God. Revelations 21, 5 says, Behold, I am making all things new. Well, what is he making new? Let's look at 3 through 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. In this new heaven and this new earth, where we get to dwell and commune with God, everything is going to work according to its desired purpose. And everything will be made whole again, like it was at the beginning in Genesis. Knowing the story of God allows for a greater appreciation, adoration for God. See, worship is adoration through action. It's adoring God for who he is and what he's done for us. And you cannot have adoration I mean, you cannot have worship without adoration. It's not possible. If there's no adoration there, you're just doing stuff. That's why knowing the full story of God is important. Because it's going to be the fuel to our adoration for God. Or as Pastor Clay said a moment ago, the cross is our passion. It's what drives us to our knees in worship. So so now that we talked about adoration for a moment, the story of God. Let's just talk about action for a second. Worship is anything, any action done out of, any action done out of a response, out of adoration towards God. And so husbands, when you love your wives like Christ loved you, that's worship. Parents, raising your kids in a godly manner, that's worship. Singles or couples that aren't married, Listen, saving sex for marriage, that is worship. But why is it worship? Let's check out Ephesians 2.10. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So what's the big deal about gathering on Sunday morning together? Why should we do it? Because God has created an opportunity to do so. Husbands, why should you love your wives like Christ loved you? Because God has given you that opportunity to worship him. Parents, why should you raise your kids in a godly manner? Because God has given you that position and that opportunity to worship him through that. Here at at Cross Culture on Sunday mornings, we worship God in the large gathering by listening to his word, by listening to his message that he gave us so that we can know him better and we we can understand him better. But really, He gave it to us because he loved us and he wants to have a relationship with us. So we do it through a message and then we do it through music. So why, why do we use music as a part of worship? The first is it's biblical. You see throughout all of scripture in the Old Testament, you see it in Daniel and you see it mainly in the Psalms, music being used to glorify God. In the New Testament, You see it throughout scripture of the early church gathering and worshiping. The disciples sang a hymn before 
Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Saw, or excuse me, uh, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. That was an early hymn that the, the early church would have sung about Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And it's interesting that almost every vision of heaven throughout Scripture is accompanied by music. Whether it's angels singing to God or whether it's, it's us looking forward into the revelation and seeing all God's people worshiping in one loud voice, Jesus. So it's biblical. It's biblical to worship together with music. Second, it's unifying. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can trump the unifying factor of Jesus Christ. So when you come in here and you have, may have a squabble or, or, you know, one person's a Republican or one person's a Democrat or you like, you know, red carpet or blue carpet, whatever it is, nothing trumps Jesus. It's like-minded people drawing together who have understood who they were apart from Christ and who they are now in Christ coming together to worship. And so it's unifying. And lastly, third, I believe it's practical. Any, any fight, any circumstance, any trial can be reevaluated in the lens of Jesus Christ. The issues may not disappear. They may not go away. When you walk out those doors, they may slap you in the face. But you can reevaluate them in the lens of Jesus Christ. When we sing together with brothers and sisters in Christ, we're reminded of God's goodness, his grace, his comfort in any circumstance. We're reminded that he is in control over everything, no matter what. It's practical. I believe that memorizing scripture is extremely important for the Christian life. Absolutely, first and foremost. But I believe that God can also use music in a way where when you're going through a very difficult time in your life, maybe it's a melody of a song, the lyrics of a song, or something that draws your attention towards Christ that can just uplift your spirit. And hopefully that will draw you to the scripture. One particular song that uh, I know for me is very powerful when I'm going through a difficult time is this. I'll read you the lyrics for the first verse in the chorus. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, and to know that saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. No matter what happens, it is, an, it is a privilege and it is an honor to follow Jesus. And so my heart for cross-culture and worship is that we would be a community of believers who would adore Jesus above all else. There's, there's nothing added, there's nothing subtracted, it is only Jesus. Toys, a band, lights, that's all good. And we should do everything with excellence. We should. But it will never replace the place of Jesus. We were created to worship. We were created to adore God. So my, my vision and my hope for, for this church and worship is that we would adore God above all else 
and that we would worship him in an untethered, unrestrained adoration, that we would just love him for who he is and what he's done for us. The greater you understand this story and experience this story, the greater your adoration will be for God. Passion and worship. Obviously, it's very easy to see a correlation between those two subjects. And the common ground where they need to meet is the cross. Next week, we continue our series entitled Cross Culture Reconnect, reconnecting with who we are as a church. Join us online next week, or better yet, visit us next Sunday. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church. Taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.